My name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here, and I hope as Kiwis you're all excited this morning. I woke up to see one of the worst scores in history of Australia playing New Zealand, and so as an Australian, I woke up feeling quite somber um, and thinking, wow, we really didn't score anything. If you didn't know the score, sorry about that. Uh, You can enjoy it later. Why don't we pray together as we come uh, to God's Word now? Lord, as we come together this week, as we hear some of the somber realities of the future, we ask that we would hear your word by the work of your spirit and that you would impress it on our hearts so that we would not just hear words spoken, but you, the true and living God. Amen. One of the most somber experiences I've had in my life, even more somber by far than this morning, um, was walking through the Holocaust Museum in Israel. Uh, I was there last year, walking through this museum and seeing room after room after room of the destruction brought upon the Jews by Hitler's regime. It was so kind of somber. It just sent shivers down my spine thinking about, firstly, the unjustified nature of what went on, of what humanity can do. But even more than that was the reach of how many people were displaced and destroyed and brought to death. One exhibit that I I kind of went through and I was in this museum was this pretty simple exhibit, really. Uh, It was a room, and in the center of the room was a long glass plate on the floor. And below the glass plate was filled with just shoes. All shoes. All from people who were killed in the concentration camps. And as you walked over this glass plate, just shivers went down your spine thinking... Why? It was just full of it. There was shoe after shoe after shoe. But as I walked on those plates of glass, reflecting on the, on the scale of such destruction that had happened, it dawned on me that, well, the Jews didn't really deserve to die because of what they'd done to, to, to Germany. There was nothing that was kind of happened there that they deserved that. But for me, before the true and living God... For all of us who've turned our backs on Him, we did deserve to die. And that thought hit me as I walked across that plate of glass. Well, as we get to this next section of Isaiah 13 to 27, we're kind of faced with a prophetic museum. A museum of events and and, and things that would go on that that speak to the future. A pictorial look at at the future of humanity, specifically we're going to see the end of the world as we know it. Chapter 13 to 24 is basically a catalogue of of what will happen in the future from that point, written 700 years before Jesus, to the superpowers of the world of the time. So you hear about what will happen to Babylon, and then Assyria, and then Philistia in chapter 14, and then Moab in chapter 15, and then Damascus in chapter 17, and then Egypt. And what we find is one after one, as you read through those chapters, judgment will be poured out on them. Although God's judgment would start with the household of God, that's what we've been hearing about over the past few weeks through Isaiah, His judgment would not end with the household of God only, but be applied to the nations and the world. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me. As a kid, I used to hate museums. I used to hate going along and having to read those long things and let my dad be there for ages. And I'd be like, come on! 
on, let's go and get like the, whatever we can do afterwards. And, but it was always kind of stuffy and looking back at stuff. And I kind of stood there and was like, what's the point in museums? Let's have got something cool you can do or push or touch or feel. Maybe that tells you more about me. But there you go. I kind of was just sick of them. And we tended to stand back when we come to the book of Isaiah and say, well, what's Isaiah got to do with me? Like this is a, even if it's a forward-pointing kind of museum of the future, What's it got to do with us? But the scary thing we find tonight is, in this museum of the end of the world, you and I are in it. We are exhibits. It speaks of us and the judgment that is coming on the whole world. It's relatively easy to live a life that doesn't think about the end. We can get on with life. There's so many things to kind of do and kind of involve ourselves with and entertain ourselves with. So many things we can chase after, whether they be passions or pleasures or things of our own heart, that we don't often think about the end or death or what will happen to us. There's too much to do. But getting a glimpse of the end means we can evaluate the present. It means that we can live life now in light of what it will be. So as we get into the first part of chapter 24, we see the camera pan back and the judgment of God. Point one, the judgment of God. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. People and priests alike, servant and master, female servant and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. The earth will be stripped completely bare and will be totally plundered, for the Lord has spoken this message. In chapter 24, the particular nations that Isaiah had been speaking of from chapters 13 through to 24 are kind of lost to view as Isaiah's camera angle kind of pans back to cover the whole earth. And it's a somber reality. The whole earth will be stripped bare. No one is left untouched, no matter who you are or what you've done, whether your your social position in society is high or low, whether you've got money or religious title, people, priest, slave, master, creditor, debtor, all alike are swept away in the face of God's judgment. It's not some cataclysmic event or accident that's going to happen here, but the plain and clear judgment of God. I, I want us to see this. The whole earth will be wiped out, is what God is saying, because of us, because of the way people act towards Him. Look at verse 5 of chapter 24. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed teachings, overstepped decrees, and broken the permanent covenant. Therefore, a curse has consumed the earth, and its inhabitants have become guilty. The earth's inhabitants have been burned. And only a few survive. The whole way through this this book of Isaiah, we've seen the justice of God. Him bringing to account those that have rejected Him, turning their backs on the true and living God. But it's not until today that the end of the end is in view, is clearly brought into view. And it's the end here that is in view. It is the end. It's not just some halfway point in history, but the end of of the world as we know it. Look at verse 19, chapter 24. The earth is completely devastated. The earth is split open. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunkard and sways like a hut. Earth's rebellion weighs it down and it falls, never 
to rise again. And one thing you have to understand as you come through Isaiah is that Isaiah is using picture language to describe what's going on. Like the earth can't get drunk. It's like, yep, you know, I mixed in a bit of alcohol with my seas and if you had a few, like, whoa, 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 and the earth's kind of a bit more giddy than normal. That's not what's going on. But it's saying the whole world in this picture language is stumbling over itself and about to fall down and never get back up again. You can tell that he is speaking in picture language here. But that doesn't lighten the image he is portraying before us. Everyone will be judged. No one can escape. No person on earth, nor their king, nor even their heavenly beings. Look at verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the army of the heights in the heights. I take it, that's in the heavens. (laughs) And the kings of the ground on the ground. They'll be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They'll be confined to a dungeon. After many days, they'll be punished. There is a final day of reckoning. Oh, the world around us, we don't think that there's a, there's a day that will be called to account. We don't think much about the judgment of God or the end of the world. We kind of just mosey on and do our stuff. But God's word is saying, you have to live your life with this in view, with the reality of the future of the universe. All creation, everyone that has been made like captive rebels will be thrown into prison, never to be released. Now for Isaiah, this is a reality that's about to happen. As he writes these words and speaks them to a nation and to the people of of Judah and Israel, he speaks in a way that he's saying, the Lord's judgment is imminent. This is what will happen. God is coming back. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> it's a reality that he lived his life in light of every day. An urgency that made him speak and point people to the God who is the true and living God. But here's the thing. It's a reality for us too. Now, come with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we've got um, the Apostle Peter uh, writing to Christians, reminding them of how they are to live while we're waiting for that final day of the Lord. And this is what he says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. How does your view of the end shape how you live now? Does the judgment of God come into the way you view what you're doing with your life? Who you live for, uh, your hopes, your dreams, your plans? Have Have you thought through this? That each of us will come before the true and living God. And we'll be held to account for the way that we have lived. We deserve His judgment, His justice. There's a somber reality to the judgment of God. You read these passages, this whole section of Isaiah. I went through in detail the kind of 13 to 27, and I just got up and was depressed. It's like, man, give it a go. Just read page after page. But what's odd about Isaiah 25 is his response to the judgment of God. He responds in a way that you kind of don't expect. You get to 25, and it's been like all these chapters of God's judgment, right? You get to 25 verse 1, and listen to what he says. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. You're like, (laughs) 
what have you just been saying? <laughs> like, there's a part of me that when I hear the judgment of God coming, I'm not going, whoa, this is exciting. I don't be like, yeah, the world's going to end. This is great. Whoa, let's get the party hats and balloons and praise our God. You kind of, you hear it and you're like, wow, this is somber. This is kind of, if I'm honest, there's a part of it that I, I don't kind of like, really. <laughs> but for Isaiah, there's something that he sees in the judgment of God that is worthy of his praise, of praising God. There's a sense in which Isaiah worships the true and living God because there's no other God like him. I mean, who is worthy of our worship other than the one who is, whose control of history is so complete he can bring it to an end at any moment? Isaiah sees the judgment of God and what, he's, what God is speaking through him and says, he's the one to be worshipped. He is the one to live for. He is the one who is in control of all things. He is worthy of my life and my adoration and my exaltation. Well, then look at the reason that he says and the rest of it from 25.1. I will praise your name for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks. A fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Isaiah is praising God for his judgment. (laughs) Isaiah sees the judgment of God as the goodness of God. That's point number two. The goodness of God is actually his judgment. He praises God's name not despite God judging, but because God judges. For Isaiah, this is something that is good for God, that is good for who he is, and he's like, this is great. In fact, we hear about how great and glorious God's judgment is and how worthy of praise he is in 24 verse 23. Listen to the way that the picture language is described. The moon will be put to shame and the sun disgraced. Why? Because the Lord of armies will reign as king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and he will display his glory in the presence of his elders. At the end of this section of God's judgment, Isaiah stands back and says, The brightness of the moon will be eclipsed with the glory of God because of his judgment. The sun will be embarrassed at the light it puts out because it is so weak compared to what? The judgment of God. seems to me that for us as Christians, or for people today, we, we generally want to minimize God's judgment. You hear people come along and talk about the God of the, the Old Testament. Uh, the God who was there throughout all these books of the Old Testament is the God of wrath. He's the God of anger. But the God of the New Testament, He's not like that. He's, he's different. He's changed. He's kind of taken a happy pill. He, he discovered Barocca and V, you know, and now He's like, oh, the world's better. And now God is loving and, and speaks about love. But then, oh no, He wasn't. But friends, when we do that, you turn the true and living God into a figment of your imagination. You shape Him into what you think He ought to be. You think you're doing Him a favor, downplaying His judgment and up, upping His love. But He's like, no, I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you to be my social image kind of purveyor. The day God judges the universe... Isaiah is saying, the universe will see how great he is, how right his judgment, his glory, his brilliance will be so bright. 
the moon will be shamed, the sun embarrassed. But what's so bright and glorious about God? It's this judgment. See, God is glorified in His judgment just as much as He's glorified in His salvation. Please hear that tonight. Super important. God is glorified, praised, looked at as amazing and right and good just as much when He judges as He is when He saves. The judgment of God, it's part of His character. He's a just God. He does not let evil go unpunished. He does not let the guilty get off scot-free. He's a God who is just and right, and His judgments are true and right. The judgment of God reveals part of His character. It tells us part of who He is. It helps us love Him for who He is. If hearing about God's judgment makes it harder for us to love the God that we love... And perhaps the God we love isn't the God of the Bible, but more a figment of our imagination. If you want to love the true and living God, then you've got to know the true and living God as He is. You don't need to cover for Him. You don't need to make Him a bit more palatable. Part of the goodness of God is the rightness of His judgments. So often we stand and sing the praises of our God, of the way He loves us as a Father, of the way Jesus came and laid down His life for us. But if we struggle to sing of God's judgment, then there's something wrong with our faith. We've made God about our good rather than His glory. And that's a problem. For God is just as glorified in His judgment as He is in His salvation. But the great news is, God doesn't keep His glory to Himself. Oh, He is not only just, He is also loving and He shares His glory with others. And there's a hint of that in this passage here, a hint of the reason that Isaiah can celebrate the justice of God. Look at verse 23 of chapter 24. Because the Lord of armies will reign as King on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and He will display His glory in the presence of the elders. See, God's glory is not for Him alone, but also to be displayed and shown around to the elders that God has brought to Him, whoever they are, those who've who've come to His King, His Son. They get to share in the rightness and stand back and say, yes, God's judgments are right. Yes, you are worthy of our praise. Yes, you are unlike any other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's so much that goes on in this world on this earth, that we have no idea why it happens. Pain and suffering and hurt, people doing all sorts of wrong and evil. But one of the greatest joys living in this world is that while we may not know exactly why it goes on, and while we know that that God is not responsible for any evil, we do know that He is using it to bring about His plans and purposes. And that brings Him incredible glory. So we can stand back and say, I trust you. You are the God that has gone to extreme lengths for justice. Your own son has died in our place. So these events that go on, while we may not be able to see why they're happening, we can trust that you know why, and they will be for your glory. On that final day, for those who trust in Jesus, we'll be able to stand with him because of Jesus. 
and experience the glory of his justice and judgment in a way that his glory embarrasses the brightness of the sun. There's a picture of that glory in Revelation 16. Uh, Revelation, written by the Apostle John, he's writing to point forward to what will happen at the end of all things. And really, this part of Isaiah is speaking about the same thing that Revelation is speaking about, the end of the world as we know it. And in Revelation 16, um, John's been explaining what will happen as God pours out His judgment on, on different groups of people and what is going on there. And then you get to verse 7 of chapter 16, and you hear this pronouncement. I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Remember that. True and just are God's judgments. His judgment is right and good and brings Him glory, and He shares the glory with those who have come to His Son. But you see the glory of God's judgment most clearly, I think, in the judgment He pours out on His last enemy. Do you know who the last enemy of God is? Have a look, 25 verse 7. On this mountain... He will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all peoples, the sheet covering all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove His people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. The great enemy, the last enemy of God is death itself. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And Isaiah describes death as this kind of burial shroud, a cloth, a sheet covering the nations, a blanket oppressing us all. I mean, death is like that. If death has come near to your life, if you've uh, had people around you go, go through death, you'll know how oppressive and wrong and just horrible it is. Death is the last enemy of God. And Isaiah points forward to the day when he does away with death itself. In order to understand what death is, we've got to jump forward to the New Testament to help us understand why death is in the world in the first place. Is it Romans 5 is a classic place for us to go. Romans 5 explains why death is in the world. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, okay, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. See, Sin was not a creation of God's. God didn't make Adam full of sin or with sin. Uh, there's no way God did it. He, he made um, Adam in right relationship with God. And it was good. It was very good. But as Adam and Eve stand in the garden and hear the word of that serpent saying, if you take this fruit from the tree, you won't surely die. Now, God had said you would die if you eat that fruit from the tree. But, but Satan spins out this lie, you won't surely die. And so Eve and Adam decide to turn their backs on God and think that the serpent's view of life is better than the creator of life itself and take and eat. And so the moment they turn their backs on God, they become like God. They start to determine good and evil. They say, I can work out what's right and what's not. And the Bible calls that sin. Pretending to be gods. Saying we are in control. And what happens? They're booted out from the Garden of Eden. They no longer have access to the tree of life. And death enters the world because they turn their backs 
on the God who brings life. You do realize that. If you turn your back on the one who brings life, you're turning your back on life itself. And that's why death is in the world. Friends, we believe the words of Satan all too readily. You won't surely die. How often has that kind of train of thought come into your head as you're thinking about the judgment of God? That won't really happen. Just live it up. Live life now. This will be good for me. I know it's not right, but I just want to do it. Just want to let my body go here or do this or think that or live for me. God's view is so antiquated. God's view doesn't kind of fit my pace of life at the moment. Death, friends. You will surely die. That is the reason we all die. Because all of us, at different points throughout our life, have turned our back on God. And that's why all of us deserve the judgment of God. But the great news of Isaiah 25 is that God, the just God, is going to do something Himself about the blanket of death that affects us all. That's where we get to see the freedom of God. The freedom of God. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Let's read it all. On this mountain, says Isaiah, the Lord of armies will prepare for all people a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he'll destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all people, the sheet covering all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. Friends, the great news of this chapter about the end of the world is that there is freedom from God on offer. Freedom from death. Freedom into relationship with God. A few things to notice about this section. Do you notice it's a picture that's not just for the Jews only, but for all people who come to the mountain of the Lord. Verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the people a feast of choice meat. All who come to the mountain of the Lord, which is what we know today is Jesus who's come to that mountain, who's died in our place and risen again. All who come to Him. Death is defeated. No matter what nation you are from, no matter what has gone on, coming to Jesus and being part of God's people is something that is now available to those who aren't only Jews, but Gentiles as well. Isaiah 19 uh, gives us an amazing picture of these people from all nations. Isaiah 19.24, have a look at it. On that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing with the land. The Lord of armies will bless them, saying, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance, are blessed. Now, what's amazing there is we often think of the people of God are just the Jews. And, and that's what you see throughout the Old Testament. It's the Jews that are the people of God. But here, God calls the arch enemy of Israel, Egypt and Assyria, His people. My people. This future picture of what will happen will be all people from every tribe, language, people and nation being brought in to God. The enemies of God calling Jesus their Lord. 
it got me thinking, you know, we actually see this expressed within us here. Um, it's like, where, where's Ravan tonight? Can you, where's, where, was, guys, hey, where is he? Can you stand up for a second, brother? This is great. Look at this. I got his permission before. So, R- Ravan, where were you born? Iran? Iraq. Brilliant. Now, thanks, brother. You can sit down. Do you know, do you know where Iraq is? It's called Assyria. <laughs> right here. God has brought this person from Assyria into his family by trusting Jesus. Amongst us, we have this kind of, it's exciting. You're seeing a fulfillment of God's word right here. It's like, Ravan, you are called God's people because you trust in Jesus. I'll show you another one. Um, a guy's been amongst us for probably about five months, just gone home. I wish he was still here. Here's a picture of Andrew. I got his permission, but not everyone else in the photo. Sorry. So Andrew there, second from the left. Uh, do you know where he was born? Egypt. And here is a, a man born in Egypt that now through going along uh, and hearing the Bible taught in Bible and schools has put his trust in Jesus and now is called God's people. We have amongst us and have had amongst us the fulfillment of the way God works, bringing the nations to him. It's amazing. How great is our God? Isaiah here is painting a picture of what Paul would describe in Galatians 3, of one new humanity, one people of God, all those that come to the mountain of God, the true Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. Look at Galatians 3, 27. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Heirs according to the promise. Friends, this is amazing news. That people who aren't God's people, people who deserve judgment for turning our backs on God, can now be called the people of God because of what Jesus has done. And that for us, death can be removed. Life forever is possible. Having Abraham's blood in one's veins is not the primary consideration, but rather now, having Abraham's faith in our heart, trusting in the God who sent his son. And so this picture that we get at the end of this section of Isaiah is an amazing picture. It's a picture of a feast. Now, I know not every image of the new creation is equally attractive to every person, right? So the picture of every tribe and nation and and language gathered around together in one big kind of gathering, right? It's probably the introvert's nightmare. You're like, ah! I think God will change you to be more like, they're perfect people. It'll be great. I'm not saying extroverts are perfect and right, but in the new creation, we'll love it, okay? That's what will go on. But here is an image that, oh, is so good. You read this idea of this feast, that God is inviting His people and will bring those who've come to His Son to a feast with God forever. Choice meat. It's got to be lamb. Right, it's the smell of lamb, roast lamb. Oh, I love it, right? Choice meat and aged wine. It's this, this picture of eating and feasting together. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, someone told me about a restaurant in Auckland, before we moved here, actually, uh, that was called Wildfire. It's still here. Who's, who's been to Wildfire? Ah, oh, see, they know. All these people have had a taste of heaven. See, I, I kid you not, um, Wildfire is this phenomenal restaurant where basically it's a Brazilian barbecue where they just cook meat all night. 
and they just come out and give you meat. Now, wildfire's not paid for this. There's no advertising, you know. <laughs> Tom Nile's great as well. But, um, <laughs> but literally, you've got this little stop-go light on the table, and, and you turn it green, and they just bring meat to you. And so they keep, they've got some veggies just to help you swallow the meat. But, you know, it's just meat that comes out. Whatever you want, chicken, lamb. It's just, I was like, this is a taste of heaven, surely. Literally, I was sitting there, I was thinking, this is a taste of heaven. And I came up with two reasons why. You ready? Number one, I see all this meat come out on skewers and think, man, that animal got burnt instead of me. That's, that's a taste of heaven. Because I deserve to be burnt, but this animal was burnt, and so now I can eat it. And this is amazing. But the greater reason was this. It's a feast that doesn't end. Reminds me of this picture that God has given us of Him bringing people who don't deserve it into relationship with Himself because of what He has done through His Son of the Cross. Now tonight, you might be sitting here going, look, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegan. This whole meat stuff, it's, I don't like that at all. You know, I'm an introverted uh, vegan. <laughs> Look, I think what you need to do is picture this as like the best food you've ever had. That's the kind of thing you might... This is an amazing taste. I don't know what that is for you. Tofu. Uh, just uh, uh, Whatever it is for you, I, I picture this as an amazing meal that you're like, wow. You know, I, I sometimes really enjoy vegetarian. Uh, sometimes Sarah cooks, I'm like, wow, this is great. What's this meat? And Sarah's like, no, there isn't any. I'm like, oh, what was that? And usually mushroom. Anyway... <laughs> But the freedom Isaiah points God's people to in the midst of their judgment is not just freedom from our ultimate enemy, death. Oh, death has been shown, this banquet of coming to, to God, for coming to God, and death not being our end, but life forever. But there's something even greater than that. He points us to a banquet that is relationship with God Himself. Not at a distance. Remember, this is the true and living God, the God before whom we should be like crushed because we've turned our backs on Him, the God who brings judgment, who is a consuming fire. We are allowed to come into the presence of, and not only that, He invites us to His table and says, eat with me forever because of the death of His Son in our place. How amazing it is to not just have a meal, but have a relationship with the true and living God. One of the best meals of my life was particularly good, but it wasn't because of the food. <laughs> it was actually the company. I, I heard a guy speak, a kind of a bit of a Christian hero of mine by the name of Don Carson. A great Bible guy, written heaps of books. I'd heard him speak a couple of times. I was in my last year of theological college, uh, and I was what they called a senior student, right? So one of the kind of people in, in the fourth year that we kind of represented the student body and helped things go on well. And one of the duties of the senior students was we had to run lunch. And we had to do a number of other things as well, but... Running lunch, um, running lunch meant we uh, had to sit at the principal's table because we get to say grace at the end and kind of do stuff together. Uh, so you got the principal's table there. It's, it's kind of imagine like a cutback version of Hogwarts, right? That, that's it. Lunch, you got the principal's table. He's got big, long, white hair. You know, not quite. But um, but we're, I'm at the principal's table at, at lunch, and there was a visiting lecturer that week that was Don Carson. So I literally sat opposite Don Carson for all of lunch, just chatting about stuff and New Zealand and the need of the gospel here and what was going on. It was an amazing lunch, not because of the food, but because of the company. How much greater will it be seated at the table with the true and living God who's forgiven us of our sins and, spending, and wants to spend an eternity with us, not because of anything we've done, but because of His love for us. Oh, He's just, don't get me wrong. But the punishment has been paid in Jesus. It is death and resurrection. God invites us to relationship with Him. 
not just life forever, but life forever with Him. And that means that when that last day comes, we have great confidence because death will not be our end. Listen to Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians. He says this, On the last day, those who trust in Jesus, who've come to the mountain of the Lord, they can say this, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we can say, death will not win. For those who trust in Him, we can thumb our noses at death and go, give me your best shot. You know, Anyway, that's a song later. But literally, we, we, can, we can laugh at death. It has no power over us because, yes, we'll all experience death most probably unless we're alive when Jesus comes back, which could be tonight. But it's only a window, a gateway into life forever and a never-ending banquet with God. Isaiah 25 verse 9. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He has saved us. What great words. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Friends, if you have come to Christ, if you put your life in His hands, and that is the future you and I get to look forward to, that is ours and will be ours the day Jesus comes back and there is a new heaven and a new earth. But if you've not come to Jesus, then the only end that is in view tonight is the end of the world as we know it, death that will not end. Separation from God's goodness, facing the consequence for what we all deserve, for turning our backs on God. Friends, please, hear this word from Isaiah. Look forward to the, the Jesus he's pointing forward to and see that he has offered you life, forgiveness, through Jesus' death in your place. He is offering you Entry to the banquet of God and relationship with Him forever. How do we know? Because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And history points to the fact that He really rose. He really did the stuff the Bible says He did. The question for us is, whose view on life will we take? Will we take God's view or our own? Will we say, no, no, I think there's some other explanation for what went on. Or will you look at the evidence and come to Jesus and recognize that in Him, and only in Him, is entry into the banquet of God that lasts forever. Friends, the message of Isaiah for us all is this. Trust God. He is just, and He is good. And He will come back again. And so as we are waiting now, as we are waiting for that day that He comes back, through all sorts of sufferings and trials and hardships, don't give up. Don't give in to the temptations of the world around us. Don't seek a better future thinking that you know what's best, but trust in Jesus. Run to Jesus. Stay in Jesus. And you will experience the glory of God that does not end. Listen to Isaiah 26 verse 8. Yes, Lord, we wait for you in the path of your judgments, and our desire is for your name and renown. Live for the glory of God found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, tonight as we experience a taste of the realities of your judgment, there's a sense in which we are rightly afraid. 
afraid of the reality of what we deserve. We confess we haven't lived as we ought, we haven't treated you as God, that we deserve your judgment. But we are so thankful that Jesus has died in our place and risen again, and he offers us life with you forever. We thank you for your justice. We thank you that at the cross, you poured out your justice on Jesus. And we ask that you would fix our eyes on the reality of what you have done, that we might share in your glory on the day Jesus comes back, that we might trust in him all the days of our life and enjoy relationship with you now in part and then in full. So we ask you'd fix our eyes on your son. Pull us away from the temptations of this world and let us live for you in every area 100%. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We're going to spend a couple of moments uh, with questions. Sorry I didn't let you know that we've got questions coming. Uh, You can come and chat to me later if there's any that we don't get to go through. Um, Let's have a quick shot of these. Number one, regarding last week's passage, it's great. Our connect group was wondering, is Isaiah 11, 11 to 16, talking about things that that have already historically occurred or are they future events to come? Um, Great question. That's like a number of chapters ago, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Let's get there. Great question. Isaiah 11. eleven to 16. So, from 10, on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover a remnant of his people who survived from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shina, Hamath, and the coast and islands of the west. He will lift up a banner for the nations. He will gather the dispersed of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim's envy will cease. Judah's harassing will end. Ephraim will no longer be envious of Judah. Judah will not harass Ephraim, but they will swoop down on the Philistine flank to the west. Uh, Together they will plunder the people of the east, they will extend the power of Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be their subject. The Lord will divide the gulf of Suez, he will wave his hand over the Euphrates with his mighty wind, and will split into seven streams, letting people walk through on foot. It will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will survive from Assyria, as there was for Israel, when they came up from the land of Egypt. So what the picture you're seeing here is is of of the, the Jews that are scattered in judgment, that are spread throughout Uh, the ancient Near East, coming back together. And particularly, you see all throughout the Old Testament, there is a desire and a a longing to see God's people come back to the national Israel, to the land that is set out in the bounds when they crossed over into Canaan uh, that is there. You kind of see them moving toward that. But using here language that's spoken of and very similar to um, coming out of the Exodus and this picture that God is saving them. But what we keep seeing throughout the Scriptures is, this actually never happens fully. Uh, They're always waiting for it. They're waiting for this to happen and all nations to flock in. And they're waiting for a leader. You get to the New Testament and and they're still waiting for a leader who will rule them politically. And what we see is that when Jesus comes, he, he, He brings in a kingdom that will not end but a kingdom that will be physical, yes, but not quite yet. And so this, there's this kind of one event. If you want to look at it, a good illustration is, imagine you're standing on, um, on a train platform. Right? You're standing on a train platform. We'll, we'll get with you. Standing this way. The train's about to, about to come, and you can hear it coming. And, you're looking, and you look down the railway line, and you see the front of the train coming toward you. 
And it's kind of like what, what Isaiah is saying. There'll be this day when all nations will be gathered together and God will gather his people from the four corners of the earth. And you see it coming, the, 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 the Savior, the, the, the root of Jesse is coming, God's promised king. And you see this train coming. And what happens is we get to Jesus uh, and that's when the train kind of starts to come and we see that the Messiah is here. And so the train gets to the platform, but it's still moving. And it's like the train's here, but what, we, what looked like it was just one train from the front when it gets to the side, is still going. It's like, it makes the train noise every time. Uh, and so we're at this point where the front of the train, Jesus' first coming has happened. But we still haven't seen all the things that the Old Testament points forward to happen in their fullness until Jesus returns in the second coming. And so we, we're in this kind of period of time called now, but not yet. When Christ's reign is now, but it's not yet fully happened. And the Old Testament promises are all pointing forward to that reality, looking for that to happen, seeing that to happen. Now, there are times that God's people do come back into the promised land, but it's never fully what happens. You see um, a number of things prophesied about in Isaiah that that don't happen at all, Um, in the way that that Babylon will be totally wiped out. That doesn't quite happen in human history yet. And so you kind of see hints of this, and, and parts of that happen, but not in their fullness So partly what we're doing as we come through Isaiah is we're seeing where do we see this stuff happen? Well, there are some bits that are fulfilled. They do come back into the promised land after they're taken out into exile, but they never rebuild the temple fully. Uh, They never do the kind of things that are promised fully. But we do see them promised and fulfilled in Jesus. And so you're looking for partial fulfillment in the here and now with a full fulfillment in when Jesus arrives and then comes back. So hopefully that's a quick explanation of kind of what's going on. Um, my advice is not to look too literally for every little detail. Often we get ourselves in trouble when we do that in apocalyptic type writing that's pointing forward to a time. We, we can try and match up this and that and line everything up perfectly. You've got to work out, is he speaking in picture language here? And how does the New Testament interpret this? There's some helpful hints on the way through that. Happy to have a chat with you later on that. Uh, how is Jesus the mountain in 25 verse 6? All, all throughout um, Isaiah, you keep seeing that God will raise the root, the stump of Jesse, his promised one, on the mountain. And so it's talking about Israel, literally the, the, the temple mount where the temple was. And in Israel, you've got this small mountain that is there. And, and they're saying that that is the place um, where, where God will raise up his leader and he will rule from Israel, Mount Zion. Uh, and so that's why it's kind of picture language for saying Jesus will come and be the ruler who will lead from the place of God's presence on the temple. And what, is, what does Jesus say when, when he meets uh, them? You know, they're looking at the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it again. Who's he talking about? Him. I am the temple. I am the place where God's rule is found, God's presence is found. So, quick answer on that one. Um, next question. In verse 8, it says that the Lord will wipe away the tears from every face. Does that include unbelievers too? Um, yeah, the, the answer there is no. Uh, the tears from every face seems to be those who come to Him, those who aren't judged. The remnant would be the language that uh, Isaiah would use, um, those who kind of come to, to, to God and, and trust in Him. And so the picture in the New Testament that clarifies what that looks like is for those who, who don't know Jesus, who don't put their trust in Him. It's um, imagery of like a, a lake of burning fire, Separation from God's goodness in, in grief and anguish that does not end. Now, I think, you know, is that literal? Is, is hell a literal fire that burns? I don't think so. I think it's figurative, a picture. But it's not going to be any less than that. It's going to be far, far worse. Separation from God's goodness forever. 
And so the picture in, in Revelation 21 that takes this language, uh, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order has gone, has gone away, is for those who've come to Christ and trusted in Him and had their sins forgiven. Everyone else is still under their sin, as we deserve to be. The only difference is we've, we've come to the Saviour in Jesus. Okay. Uh, knowing that we could never live up to the standard of God and that God made it that way, how is it fair that God could judge people by this unreachable standard? Yeah, helpful question. Um, I think a couple of things to see. Is it possible for a human being to live up to God's standard? Yes. His name's Jesus. And He's done that. He has lived perfectly as a full, fully human. We don't want to diminish any of His humanity with the same pressures. Hebrews tells us He was tempted um, as we are tempted. He has felt the same pressures as us and He has withstood that. That wasn't because of His divinity, but because He is the perfect human. Uh, and so, as God made us, He didn't make us in a way that we couldn't live up to His standard. But the reality is that we are broken because of our sinfulness, because of our, who our parents are, because we're born of sinful people. And because we actually want to live our way, we choose to do it. It's a choice that we make. We're not kind of... Um, we're not held hostage to sin, like sin has come in and overpowered us and it's something that we just couldn't do in and of ourselves. It's that we choose to sin. Uh, it's actually what we're like. God's eternal power and divine nature have been made clear, Romans 1 tells us. But we even reject that. We, we, don't, we don't respond to Him as the ruler of the world, as we ought. Uh, and so God's standard is good and right. <laughs> and, I, and I hear that question. How could God, you know, is that fair? How's it fair that God could hold such a high standard and, and we're not meeting it? Surely He needs to lower His standard a little. Um, the question then is, that means that you've got a God who's unjust. And He says, no, actually, this is what goodness is. This is perfection. And you're not there and you've rejected me. It, it, to, to lower His standard is, is to say, well, God, be a little bit less God. Be a little bit less good. Uh, the, the real question we should ask at this point is, how is it fair that God can let me, who's a sinner, live? Like, why am I allowed to be alive right now? Why didn't God go, as I was born, as I made that first rebellion against God, why didn't He just go, gone, up in smoke? He should have. Well, why is He allowing my heart to beat now and, and the hearts of the people in the world who rejected Him, which is all of us at heart? Well, actually, 2 Peter tells us He's giving people time to come to Him. Uh, it might be worth having... Have we got time? Where are we at? Um... Have a look. I will go there. It's fun. Let's go. 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse... Let's just go from verse 1. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall words previously spoken by the prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that is promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they've been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago. And through these, the, the world of the time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand. 
And he's the reason why we're still alive right now. But he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why doesn't God just end us right now? Because he wants to give people time who have not yet recognized who he is and what he's done. Time to come to him and trust in his son. And so God has gone to incredible lengths. God, the son, has died in our place. He's taken the punishment. He's not, he's done it for us. He didn't deserve it, but he's taken it on him so that we could stand forgiven. He's not just some God at a distance. He's stepped in and died for us. And so the picture here is, well, if we want what's fair, we want death on us right now. But what God is offering is time to come to his son and see the forgiveness that he's offered there. All right, last question. Is it possible for Jesus to return before the Great Commission is finished? Uh, is the Great Commission finished? Um, so the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, go tell the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so could Jesus come back before the Great Commission is finished? Well, it seems to me that when you read through the New Testament, the expectation is that Jesus will return at any moment. Uh, you read that in the Gospels, um, you see it, um, oh look, we're in Peter, let's go to 1 Peter. If you've got your Bible still open at 1 Peter. Um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. As Peter writes this letter, he's saying the end of all things is near, it's, it's imminent, it's at any moment. And so we're not supposed to go, that's all right, Jesus won't come back because the gospel hasn't gone to every single place in the world yet. I think we need to keep proclaiming the gospel and taking the gospel out, but we're also called to live with the expectation that God's return, Jesus' return, is imminent. So Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, sober-minded, so you might pray. Above all, have a constant love for one another, be hospitable, um, use the gift you've been given as stewards of God's grace and serve because Jesus is coming back. And so the reality for us is while we wait for the return, with the reality that is imminent at any moment, we are to serve Him looking forward to that day. Well, if you've got more questions, come and chat to me or hang out the front afterwards so you can come down, love to chat through them. But why don't we pray and thank God again for His Word to us. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word is living and active. Your Word pulls apart our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and shows us where we don't treat You as we ought. But at the same time, Your Word fills us with a great hope, that certain assurance of Jesus' death in our place. As we try and understand these great overarching arcs of history and the way You've worked from the shadow through to the reality fulfilled in Jesus, as we sit in this overlap of the ages where Jesus has come but we don't yet experience His second coming, Keep our eyes fixed on Him. Help us to see the great joy we have of calling You our Father and Jesus our brother. And help us, therefore, to live for You with the gifts and skills and abilities You've given us, holding on to the reality that it's only because of Jesus that we can call You our Dad. Pray this in His great name. Amen.